Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we begin a new series through the book of 1 Timothy with the aim of this series leading towards officer elections here at Westminster. And as we go forward in this series, this will continually be a theme which sets in the background and one which gets referred to frequently. I know not all of you will ever be officers in the church and only a few of you may be officers in the near future. But the instructions that are given in this book are important for each and every one of you. So lend your ear now to the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly, godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved having have turned aside unto vain jangling desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm thus far the reading of god's word let us now ask his blessing upon it Oh, Heavenly Father, we do ask Thy blessing would be upon the reading of this Word, this Word as we sang earlier that Thou hast kept pure and preserved. This Word which is more pure than silver refined in the refiner's fire. This Word which is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. O Lord, let us receive this word with gladness and with thanksgiving. Let it penetrate into our hearts so as to implant itself deep within us that we may learn to trust it and obey it. O Lord, now as we approach the proclamation and preaching of this word, we ask that thy hand of blessing would be upon the minister this day. That he would preach as one with authority, authority that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and that what is preached this day would be received for what it is as the Word of God. For the faithful preaching of the Word of God is to be received as the Word of God. And Lord, we pray that what is preached today is not the man's opinion, but is the doctrine which Thou hast given us to feed our souls, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to cause us to increase in faith. So we ask, Lord, that the preaching today would not be in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but would be in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. O Lord, feed us with Thy Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This book is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus. Timothy was converted under the ministry of Paul during his missionary journey. And this is why we see in verse 2 that Paul calls him mine own son in the faith. So Paul is writing to this young pastor and essentially giving him a divinely inspired manual for how the church is to be run. He understands that there are many challenges that Timothy is facing in Ephesus and so he comes alongside of him as best as is possible. Though he, he be many miles away in Macedonia. He comes alongside of him in order to aid him in serving Christ's church well. There's found in this letter general instruction regarding doctrine. There's, there's guidance and wisdom in how to combat false teachers. Those teachers who have already begun to make themselves known in this flock. There's counsel to the congregation in how uh, men and women ought to behave in the assembly of the saints. And there is what I'm sure you're most familiar with in this letter, the qualifications and duties of the officers of the church elder, and deacon. And there's even instruction on how to handle church discipline in this letter. All of these things make up this manual which is given to Timothy. And not only given to Timothy, it's given to you as well. It's given to the entirety of the church. Every one of you, whether you're a leader in the church or not, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or you're old, you are to receive this letter as instruction and encouragement for you in how to live as a member of Christ's church. As we anticipate the election of officers here at Westminster, I want you all to learn from this book 
what the Lord requires of those who are to serve as leaders in the church and let this book be your guide in thinking about who you will elect and whether or not the Lord may be calling you to serve as well. So we'll take up this manual, this letter of pastoral wisdom, and we will do so this morning by considering three heads. First, the authority of ministry. Next, the charge of ministry. And finally, the goal of ministry. So first, the authority of ministry. Look with me at the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Here, Paul is... Uh, establishing not just with Timothy, but with all those who read this letter, that the authority with which he writes these things is not his own. But it's an authority that is given to him by Christ Jesus. He says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the commandment of God our Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He was commissioned by the Lord Himself to be a messenger of Christ. To be an ambassador for the Gospel. This is absolutely essential to understand that the authority in the church does not come from the individual but from the Lord who sets them apart for the work of the ministry. Paul understood this, which is why so often in his writings he appeals to him being an apostle. Not because it makes him better than anyone else, but because he wanted to he wanted the people know to know that he did not speak on his own authority, but that of Jehovah. And notice that he says that he is an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior. This calling that is placed upon those in gospel ministry is a commandment of God not something that can be made light of. Holding office in Christ's church is an immense weight and it cannot be taken lightly. If you're called to serve in this way, then you are a steward of the mysteries of God. You are responsible for the souls under your care. You are to point the sheep of the flock to God their Savior, to Christ their hope, 
Because He alone is our hope. Our hope is in Him. All our hope of eternal life is built upon Him. Christ is in us the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 And then Paul goes on and he gives this apostolic greeting. And here it's slightly different. We read, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and peace are those things which we are accustomed to seeing in the writings of Paul, but only here and in Titus do we see mercy added to this list. This means that Paul only adds mercy in those letters that are directed towards pastors. Why is that? Well, very likely it's because those who are in ministry are in greater need of the constant reminder of God's mercy to them. Because everything about us is lived out in the public and is subject to harsher criticism and scrutiny. Perhaps it's also because so often those who are in leadership within the church can fail to see their own need for mercy. Thinking that they are in this position and that they are all good and forgetting that they rely upon the mercy of God as well. The haughtiness of ministers and elders and even deacons who have forgotten their need for the mercies of God have been the downfall of many a man. Patrick Fairbairn writes, while, they're, while they are ambassadors of mercy to others, let them never forget that they need to be themselves partakers of mercy, never more so than when they are engaged in the higher duties and pressing the more sacred interests of the Gospel. Friends, this is so true. The moment the leaders of the church forget that they need to be themselves partakers of mercy is the exact moment that the church will begin to see its own collapse being imminent. For the sake of Jesus Christ and His bride, we must be willing to examine ourselves and see that we too are in need of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ our hope. We are nothing without Him and His grace, mercy, and peace being upon us. And friends, this truth applies to you as well. While you may not be in leadership, you are still in an ambassador role representing Christ to the lost and dying world around you. Every word that you say represents the Lord. And so when you open your mouth, especially when doing so for the purpose of sharing the Gospel, you must do so in full reliance upon the authority of God.
You must do so knowing that Jehovah alone has the authority to command men unto repentance and that you are simply speaking as an ambassador for your Savior. And you must remember as well that you are reliant upon the grace, mercy, and peace from the Lord. Without His grace, you would not be sitting here today as one saved by the blood of the Lamb. Remember what Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. <coughs> and without His mercy being shown unto you, you would be receiving your just reward for the sins that you have committed against the Holy God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And without His peace, you would be as a ship lost at sea, being battered by the wind and the waves with no way to find land. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So rest in that. Rest in that which is found in God alone, for He is your authority he is your giver of grace. He is your fountain of mercy and He is your refuge of peace. Paul goes on in his instruction to Timothy and he gives him a charge. The charge of ministry. Look at verses 3 and 4. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, giving heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith so do. Paul had a desire to be there with Timothy and to continue working with him in Ephesus. But the Lord had different plans. He knew that he, was ne he needed to be in Macedonia, but instead of leaving that fledgling church to continue without any direction or oversight, he left Timothy there as an evangelist, overseeing the work of the church in his absence. And so Paul charges Timothy to charge others not to teach any other doctrine. And this word charge denotes a power. It denotes an authority. And we've already seen that the authority of ministry does not come from the man, but from Jehovah. Paul is telling Timothy that the Lord has given him this authority to ensure that only pure doctrine is taught in the church. 
Paul wishes to arm him with power to restrain others. Apparently at some point after the founding of this church and and before the writing of this letter, false teachers had begun to rise up in the church and were, were teaching things that were not in accord with, the, uh, with, with that which Paul had taught them. They were teaching a different type of doctrine than that which had apostolic authority. Meaning that from the very beginning, it was the teaching of the apostles that were held as the standard by which all other teaching was to be tested. All teaching that is not found to be in accord with the apostles' teaching was given the term another doctrine. The Greek term where we get our word heterodoxy from. So what was this other doctrine that they were beginning to teach or not exact that were not given exactly what the false teaching was it's it's possible that there were some uh, Judaizing elements in the city of Ephesus like there were in Galatia and that that is what Paul's speaking of but if that were the case we would expect him to call out the specific false teaching like he does in many other places in his writings or it could be that there were some converts from the pagan culture who were seeking to blend the two cultures with their doctrine. But we would expect him to call that out as well. The only glimpse of what were these false teachings that we have in, in this passage, the only glimpse of these other doctrines is found in verse 4. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. It's likely that these false teachers were bringing fables and myths into the teaching of doctrine. Like bringing in folk tales in order to teach a lesson. It would be similar to a pastor telling the story of Paul Bunyan instead of preaching the Gospel. And then they were also bringing in genealogies which did nothing to promote the advancement of the Gospel. They were likely highlighting either their own heritage as a way to gain more uh, credibility or they were using mythological genealogies in order to teach some moral principle. One commentator says these were composed of frivolous and unfounded stories which they regarded as of great importance and which they seemed to have desired to incorporate with the teachings of Christianity. And while it's not particularly necessary that we know exactly what this other doctrine is, it is important to know that they were bringing in teaching which was not founded upon the revelation of God. 
Paul says that these other doctrines only minister questions. They do not build up or strengthen the body, but they only cause confusion. So many men are in the pulpit today and their teaching does nothing but minister questions. That's not what the ministry should look like. Such teaching of fables and genealogies lend themselves toward causing division and strife and conflict within the body rather than unification and edification. And so Paul says to not give heed to such things. Do not permit them to have a place in the church of God. Instead, Timothy is to heed to godly edifying which is in faith. Friends, this is what the teaching of the church ought to do. It ought to edify. It ought to build up one another. Yes, there will be times when the things that are taught may grind against what you have been told in the past. Yes, there may be things that are taught that are difficult to understand at first. Yes, there may be things that are taught that are hard for you to hear because they confront you in your own sin. But if those things that are being taught are in conformity with that which the apostles taught, if they are are rooted and founded in the Word of God, and are not mere opinion or stories or traditions of man, then they are to be received with gladness and be utilized towards the edification of the saints. We must not corrupt the pure Gospel, the pure doctrine with new and borrowed innovations or teaching which give way to vain speculation. Instead, we must hold fast to the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Calvin says, all doctrine must be tried by this rule that those which contribute to edification may be approved and that those which give ground for unprofitable disputes may be rejected as unworthy of the church of God. Friends, the church is The church at large is far too quick to give heed to whatever teaching tickles their itching ears. This must never be the case with us. The true Gospel, the pure doctrine of the Scripture will be offensive to some people. Not because we intentionally make it offensive, but because the Word of God confronts the sinful desires of man's heart. We don't like being confronted in our sins, and so we get offended by the truth that is preached to us. But dear saints, if you have been made new, if you have the Spirit operating within you, then this pure doctrine will not be offensive to you, but will be food sweeter than honey 
It will be nourishment for your souls. It will be something that builds you up. One of the most successful schemes of Satan has been to mingle fable with truth. And when he cannot overthrow the truth by direct opposition, he seeks to neutralize it by mingling it with much that is false and frivolous. It is the duty of all believers, but especially the officers of the church, to ensure that all teaching is with the aim of godly edification. So that the Christians may be improving in godliness and growing up to a greater likeness of Christ. So we have seen the authority of ministry and the charge of ministry. Let us now turn to consider the goal of ministry. Look with me at verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Friends, love must be the goal of ministry because it is the highest thing which we are to strive after as a Christian. What are the two greatest commandments? Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Friends, love is the chief end of it all. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind. Every part of our being must be devoted to the Lord in true and sincere love for Him. And likewise, we must love our neighbors as ourselves. How much strife and conflict in the church would go away if we would just remember these two commands of Christ. And do not forget that it is love which is the chief end of the Gospel. It is love which brings men unto Christ and restores a right relationship between them and the Father. It is love which renews man after the image of God whose name and nature is love itself. Friends, this love is absolutely essential to the ministry of the church. And without it, we are nothing more than a social club with religious undertones. Without love, we are nothing. And there really is no reason for us to even exist as a congregation. So let me ask you, would people look upon your life and the life of this church and say that we are a people of love? Not the fake love that the world tries to shove down our throats. 
but real, true, abiding love. I pray that's the case with us because love is the goal of ministry. And Paul says that this love is out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. The heart is the core of who you are as a person. It is the seat of your affections, of your passions, of your motives. If your heart is polluted, if it is impure, then the love which is required will not be true and it will be corrupted as well. You must be examining your hearts to see if it is pure. Are your motivations for whatsoever you do rooted and based in the Word of God and a desire to serve Him? Are the desires of your heart for those things which the Lord calls you to long for? Or are the desires of your heart for the sinful lusts of the flesh and the fulfillment of those lusts? Is your heart oriented towards service and devotion to the true God? Or have you made a God in your own image and hidden that false idol within your heart? Are you more concerned with yourself than you are for others? Friends, this love must come out of a pure heart. And it must also be of a good conscience. Are the things that you say and do true to the inward disposition of your soul and in accordance to the Word of God? The love you have for Jehovah and for one another must come from a life that is pursuing true holiness and being willing to confess your sin and repent of them when you fail in that pursuit. Part of this love being of a good conscience is that you're not a hypocrite. Do you say that you have love for God and for one another and then your actions speak something entirely different? If your conscience is not clean before the Lord, if it is not good, then there will be no genuine love produced in you. And love must be of faith unfeigned. Is your faith anchored in the solid rock of Jesus Christ so that no matter what gets thrown your way, no matter how many waves of the storm of life crash upon you, you are unshakable. The Gospel bringing home conviction to the souls creates there an unfeigned faith without which not one of its truths can be received aright. Friends, you must show forth love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. And there's a warning against swerving from this goal. 
Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Whenever someone swerves and turns aside from the goal of ministry, they get consumed with vain jangling. And they end up perverting the law of God to fit their own personal desires. In Matthew 12.34, Christ says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. These false teachers had shown their true colors because they could not keep up the facade for long. And we see this time and time again, even today, when an officer in the church has swerved from the goal of ministry and has turned aside unto vain jangling. Their heart is not filled with love and right knowledge for the law of God. And so their speech begins to reflect this. Fairbairn is very pointed when he says, if the heart is not in the great things of the Gospel, if it is out of accord with the deep spiritual tone, it cannot delight to speak of them and will, only too, uh, it, and will be only too glad to turn aside to inferior topics. Friends, the heart must be filled with the good things of the Lord, with love for God and for one another, and with a right knowledge of the law. If these things are not present, especially within the officers of the church, then they will cause everyone to swerve away and turn aside unto vain jangling as well. You must be sure to keep first things first and not place undue importance upon trivialities or personal opinions. Do not elevate your own desires, your own personal hobby horses over and against the good of the church. This will prove deadly in the long run. Whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a member in the pew, this truth is for you. That your goal in all things must be love. Brothers and sisters, this letter is so full and rich with glorious gospel truths. We have so much before us which the Lord will use to guide us and direct us, instruct us, and encourage us. So I pray that as we move forward, we will do so looking to the pastoral wisdom of the Apostle Paul and how the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded His church to operate. And I pray that this will be an instruction manual for us as we move forward both individually and as a congregation seeking to serve the Lord Jesus with the aim towards that great end. That end which is love. Let us pray.
Oh Lord, we do come unto Thee once again. And we are reliant upon Thy grace, mercy, and peace. Lord, we are nothing without Thee. So we rest wholly in Thee. Let us take these truths which we have seen this day and apply them to our hearts so that we may ever seek after Thee more diligently, more wholeheartedly. And O Lord, as we anticipate uh, the coming election, we pray, Lord, that these truths would guide us and who we are to vote for to serve as leaders in this church. Oh Lord, we pray that we would never forget these truths and that they would shape us in how we live our lives each and every day. Oh Lord, we thank Thee for this word which Thou hast given us, this word which is meat for our souls. We thank Thee and we praise Thee. We ask Thy blessing to continue to be poured out upon us this day as we continue our worship service. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.